0: To the Village Oak Tree for October Eighteenth, Twenty 2023. Hello again, my name is Terrence O'Donnell and I come back to your digital village with more news from around the world and a discussion about something specific that I hope will get your attention. So let me get the advertising out of the way here so we can get on to the meat and potatoes. This once a week podcast is hosted on rss.com. It is also available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast. Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. The show is free to subscribe to for now on these mobile apps with a donation tab on the Village Oaktree webpage at rss.com. Much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. Please share this podcast as much as possible in order to get people to push out and get up and make a difference in our world before it gets too late. So a little about me, I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Sean Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting under your village oak tree, where I bring you headlines and my take from news feeds and relevant blog articles that I think are important, but sometimes lost in the shuffle of cable news. Some of these are somewhat obscure stories about climate change and the environment, racism, politics, and social injustice. For each article I present to you, there will be a link to read the stories in their entirety in the follow-up newsletters posted in medium.com, Substack.com, and in the blog section of my website at crownbehot.com. Now, there's more about my website during the break. So I will be taking a break once I've given you the headlines I picked out for this week. Then after I return, I'll bring you the second half of today's special topic. Today, in the second half, I have a big topic with a guest reader about genocide and men massacres that have taken place in North American history since 1607. That's a it's a very big topic, and it's we brought I brought it on simply because of all that's going on over there in uh, between Israel and Palestine. So my news stories are the usual stuff: uh, climate, environmental, some politics in of things. So I'm going to dive right in here. My first story came out of the Conversation US. It's a medium blog here. Uh, The story is by Rosalind R. Lapierre. Bison are sacred to Native Americans, but each tribe has its own special relationship to them. Efforts are being made to develop the capacity of Native tribes to manage bison and bison habitats. An Indigenous Scholar Explains Their Sacred Significance. So it's a very good article on the environment and how the indigenous peoples are the best caretakers to manage it all. And it's not just here in North America, but also in South America, where there's a huge thing going on down there. So Brazil's indigenous people are working and lobbying hard to get the government down there to let them take care of things. You know, they do so much better job than any of their European descended colonizers. And the focus, this story focuses on the bison, but they're also very skilled land managers. And if we let them care for the planet, we probably wouldn't be in the climate mess we are now. Study. The best way to restore ecosystems is to listen to indigenous peoples. And this one I got from thegrist.org by Lyric Aquino. Study. The best way to restore ecosystems is to listen to indigenous peoples. However, outdated science and views leads many researchers to ignore traditional law, knowledge. It's a short article in The grist details research by British Columbian researchers that show how the world could benefit by listening to indigenous voices on land management and climate. Indigenous peoples around the world have been doing a good job for thousands of years. Europeans and their descendants are the new guys on the block and are using outdated research. No surprise, as most Europeans and their colonies still think they are better than everyone else, despite evidence to the contrary. Scientists say homes of billions on track to become uninhabitable. Quote, billions of poor people will suffer and many could die, unquote. And this came out of the Futurism.com by Maggie Harrison. So to quote a paragraph in this article, According to a new analysis from researchers at Penn State and Purdue Universities, If Earth's temperature climbs beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius past pre-industrial levels, which would be roughly one more degree Celsius from its current temperature, billions of humans across vast swaths of the globe will be subject to heat so extreme that their bodies will no longer be able to naturally cool, leaving them at escalating risk of heat-induced illness and death. They are talking about excess humidity, rather than the dry heat like the U.S. Southwest and the Sahara. What this article's telling you is that if you live in a very humid, tropical environment, as, things, as the temperatures go up, the less chance you have of surviving. Next story, and this is an environmental one from Northern Ireland. Quote, the hope we had is gone, unquote. How 20 months of stasis has paralyzed Northern Ireland. While the DUP conference may put a brave face on the crisis, Public services and even the state's legitimacy are hollowing. This came out of the Guardian.com UK News by Rory Carroll. Because of the government's stalemate by the DUP, essential services are crumbling, and the local environment has taken a huge hit. Nee, which supplies 40% of Northern Ireland's fresh water, is being choked out by the blue-green algae caused by excessive farm slurry, human sewage discharges, and other management blunders. This is just one of many infrastructure issues plaguing the country because the Unionists can't come together agreeing on anything. Now the normal populace has largely given up, and so the environment is going crazy. And this one here is actually a feel-good story from Ireland. Quote, it was a plague, unquote. Killarney becomes first Irish town to ban single-use coffee cups. A blanket, bring-or-buy, reasonable scheme has been introduced in the town, which was getting... Through 23,000 cups a week. And this came out of the Guardian.com world. This is also by Rory Carroll in Killarney County, Kerry. It's a, it's a good environmental story about one noted tourist city in Ireland that started a trend to help eliminate so much paper waste scattered about and overflowing the bins around the town. Things are a lot cleaner now, and the other Irish towns and cities are taking notice. This is a good thing, and given some time, it may become an international trend. Let's hope so. The planet has enough to deal with as it is, and the more the humans can help with that, the better. My next story comes from Canada by CBC Radio, Megan McCarty uh, with CBC Radio. Jane Goodall says we need hope to fight climate change, and her hope lies with youth social sharing. If we carry on like this, we'll be doomed, she quotes, but we've got this window of time and we have to get together, unquote. This article is a a small part of an interview for CBC Radio, and even at her age, she's in her late 90s. She is still traveling around the world 300 days a year, pushing climate activism with the younger generations of uni-age students. She's right. We only have a narrow window of time left in comparison to the thousands of years it took for the Earth to get this far, to mitigate this current climate destruction event going on. Those of us who are older and caused this disaster in the making need to make it right. By empowering our youth to fix this before it becomes too late. Reveal how a little known pollution rule keeps the air dirty for millions of Americans. And this is another one out of TheGuardian.com. This one out of US News by Molly Peterson, Dylan Bergen, and Emily Zentner, with graphics by Andrew Witherspoon. Local and state governments are using a semi secret backdoor to bypass EPA air re- pollution regulations requiring them to disclose how bad the air quality is. This loophole was pushed by a climate-denying legislator from Oklahoma, as noted in this article, to favor corporations. They are using this to avoid the issue of wildfire smoke for now, but it's easy to see how they could be doing this in other states for fossil fuel emissions as well. Once again, if you want to know what's wrong, follow the money. And this is a follow-up article on something I brought to you guys a couple weeks ago. You know, there was a story here a while back I brought to you, about a, a climate expert who was in Samoa and the surrounding islands doing a report for climate changes and things. His name is Gianna Luca Grimalda. So the story I brought you was about his issue with having to fly back to Germany on a very sudden request, uh, and he didn't want to fly. And he told him when he went out there that he didn't want to fly. And now you know, the company in Germany said, "No, you have to fly." Well, because he refused, they sacked him. And that's unfortunate. Now, he's trying to appeal, but, you know, that's probably not going to work. So this article was by Damien Gale uh, in, in a gardening.com environment. And the big thing is he's stolen Samoa. Trying to, he's trying to get his ship back home. And, gets, you know, you can't fight global corporations. The big thing is, now that he's out of a job, hopefully he'll still get to turn his report in. But now that he's out of a job, I'm quite sure with all his media attention, uh, you know, not a lot, lot, but enough. He'll probably get picked up by another company. Hopefully, a green company this time. And this is an interesting article here, more of a futuristic environmental solar-powered off-road car finishes 620-mile test drive across North Africa. This is by Daniel Boffy, chief reporter in the Guardian.com environment. The Stella Terra was designed by students at. Eindhoven University of Technology and completed trip without recharging. So it's a major, major breakthrough. The students invented a solar panel run car that can run over 440 miles without a recharge in the desert areas of North Africa. Imagine what could be done in urban areas. The technology is still very new, but it's going to be the start of something new for about 40,000 euros, about the same price of a Tesla or another EV. So we got another story here. It's another feel-good environmental story. Scientists have invented a wild way to remove plastic pollution from our oceans with egg whites. Quote, 99% efficiency, unquote. I was sitting there, staring at the bread in my sandwich, and I thought to myself, this is exactly the kind of structure we need. And story by Olivia Johnson in thecooldown.com. Scientists at Princeton created an aerogel from egg whites that can remove salt microplastics from the oceans. Sounds great, but how many, how many chicken eggs will it take to remove the tons of plastic from the world's oceans? You know, granted, this is just something that somebody pulled out of their hat, made it work, but they got a long way to go to actually deploy it. New data shows monster threat poses unfathomable danger to essential resource. The whole community goes away by Leo Collis. And I got this from CoolDown.com also uh, published in Yahoo News. So, an environmental article about the dangers of fracking for oil in Texas and surrounding states. The number one issue is the amount of water that's used and discarded for this industry that's taking water needed by the communities to survive. No water, no towns or people anymore. The land becomes uninhabitable. So, is fracking for oil really worth that amount of risk to the environment? And it was an article also coming out of Africa uh, about fracking for oil over there. So you gotta wonder, is you know, is this gonna be a worldwide thing? I mean, it takes just just you know, you should read the article, it takes huge and huge amounts of oil for this. Or not, I'm sorry, water. Huge amounts of water. Uh, and they're taking it from people's drinking water. Then this one is from Brazil. Marco temporal, the anti-indigenous theory that just won't die. A recent effort by Brazilian lawmakers would be a disaster for indigenous land claims and efforts to protect the Amazon rainforest. This came out of the grist.org by Lyric Aquino. This is from Brazil, where right-wing lawmakers want to override the new president and open the Amazon forest back up for development. The global corporate agribusiness is lobbying hard to have the legislators give them free reign to cut the forest down for profit. A situation where a few rich people get richer, And a lot of poor people die, along with the whole Amazon ecosystem. I hope they can figure this out because we do not need to lose the Amazon rainforest to a bunch of financial developers. The Biden administration has begun regulating 400,000 miles of gas gathering lines. The industry isn't happy. Many of those lines, late since the fracking boom began 15 years ago, are bigger than earlier pipes. And since new reporting requirements have gone into effect, Thousands of miles of line haven't been accounted for by Craig R. McCoy and InsideClimateNews.org. Something that has been waiting a long time to come, forcing the fossil fuel industry to police up their pipelines running all over the country. A lot of them exploded and leaked due to faulty or no inspections or maintenance. So it's about time. Of course, the corporations will fight this as much as they can. They don't care if people die as long as they're making money. So now we're going to go to social injustice slash politics. My next story, The Voice. Australians vote no in historic referendum. This is in BBC.com News by Hannah Ritchie. So once again, white European colonialism wins out over indigenous rights in Australia. And the status quo remains. Bigotry and racism will likely ramp up now as the white bigots will feel emboldened by this vote and the orig- aboriginal peoples will suffer even more apparently the U- european cultural sense of exceptionalism is in full swing down under and will continue for a few more generations and to add a little bit more to this australia has actually started polling the polling places to find out who voted for what and come to find out that the po- the population areas with the largest amounts of indigenous people living there, and they voted. Majority voted for this. So now the big thing about it here is: was there some sort of voting corruption here, or was it a very very serious divide between the the white colonials and the indigenous people here? Even worse in the United States. Next, a Trump appointed federal judge just ruled a Texas county violated the Voting Rights Act, Galveston could have lost its sole black commissioner by Julia Lurie, senior reporter in MotherJones.com. So I quote from the article, what's happening in Galveston isn't an aberration, but part of a troubling trend that is playing out throughout Texas and across the South, in which Republicans at all levels of state government are going to increasingly extreme lengths to preserve white GOP power by diluting the votes of communities of color and new maps drawn for the U.S. House, state legislative seats, and local offices like the county commission and city council districts. So the reason I brought this article in here is because what they're seeing here is true, that across the southeast part of the United States and into the southwest and somewhat up into the, mid- into the Midwest in the very red states, the GOP is doing everything possible to retain their power. They're gerrymandering like crazy. You know, I brought you articles from Wisconsin, um, South Carolina, North Carolina, in almost all these states, they're gerrymandering like crazy um, and doing everything they possibly can to stay in power. And they don't want anybody who's got a darker skin color to vote because they might lose their power. All right. So now we're going to go back overseas. A spooked and lonely Taiwan looks for new friends. And this one came out of BBC.com by Rupert Winkfield Hayes. This sort of underdog tale of Taiwan shows us how they aren't depending on the big alliances so much anymore. They're courting smaller countries in their bid for a democratic independence from Beijing. It seems that the Americans in and larger allies are afraid of mainland China, so we're only helping in the down low. On the other hand, a handful of South Pacific Islands and Car- Caribbean countries, and a couple of small Eastern European countries. One small African nation and a couple from South America are not afraid to show their support. Maybe this is how Taiwan snubs the big boys and thrives on a balance of small nations to make it in the world. Now we're going to go to Poland. Poland opposition declares victory after exit polls shows ruling conservatives losing majority. Incumbent part wins plurality, but not enough to overcome coalitions formed by rivals. And this came out of, I got this one from CBC Canada. But it's been you know, it's been all over the European news. So Poland looks to have voted itself away from the abyss. Even though the Conservative Party had the largest majority out of all the rest of the opposition parties, three largest democratic parties together have more votes. They have agreed to work together to bring common sense back and a more stable democratic government. Now the EU can breathe a sigh of relief as the voters have spoken loudly. An example of the, for the U.S. voters to look at and think about. Now we're going to come across the ocean to Canada. Canada province uses constitutional override to advance pronoun legislation. Saskatchewan invokes clause to push through controversial bill requiring parental consent for children to change pronouns. And this one came out of the Guardian.com World News. By invoking the quote notwithstanding unquote clause and pushing this bill for teachers to consult with parents over gender identity for minors under 16, they risk more child abuse issues. This is the same thing that New Brunswick did earlier this year. These conservative provinces are certainly taking a page from the American anti LGBTQ playbook now. So now I got another story here Christian nationalists are infiltrating schools to make them anti LGBTQ, report by Christopher Wiggins. And this one came out, I got this from Yahoo News, but it actually came from another. Article here. It's an article about how far right actors are working to infiltrate schools in the U.S. and Canada, especially Texas, to eradicate indoctrination by woke educators and legislators. This is a prelude to them bringing Christian prayers and signage back into the classrooms, which is supposed to be against federal law here in the United States. But we all know that Texas and other conservative states and provinces are starting to go their own way when it comes to their white children. This is Social injustice now from Alabama. As I've said before, I've brought you lots of stories recently uh, of stories from Alabama. Well, here's another one. This just came from TheGuardian.com by Sam Levin. An Alabama woman was imprisoned for endangering her fetus. She gave birth in a jail shower. So it seems that Etowah County in Alabama determined to turn everything into an evangelical, puritanical county with barbarian rules for women when they get pregnant. My advice, if you're a woman in this county, leave before you end up in prison for something, anything. Apparently, women are not to be seen without a male escort, kind of like an orthodox Islamic country. And basically, I'll I'll give you a little bit about this. She apparently got caught and was accused of using drugs while she's pregnant. And they put her in jail for that. And then while she was in jail, they refused to help her during her pregnancy. So. She had no choice when it came time to give birth. Nobody wanted to help her, so she had the baby uh, in a the, in the, in the jail, you know, in the, sh- in the shower jail. Uh, and now it's all over the news. But it goes to show you just how cruel these people are. Here's another story, basically on the same on the same note. And I got this one from NBCNews.com by Bracey Harris. Driving 100 miles of labor, giving birth in the ER. Fears rise as three maternity units prepare to close in Alabama. state has one of the country's highest maternal mortality rates. Now, three hospitals plan to stop delivering babies, putting some pregnant women at even higher risk. So, with more controversy, as I said, the state in the U.S. has the most problems towards anyone else besides white people. And if you're poor and white, all of this applies to you as well. Cruel and inhuman treatment of color people from anywhere and now Cruel and inhuman treatment of poor, pregnant women of any color. The state government there needs to get a serious grip on a reality. Start taking care of its citizens before worse things happen. You know, maybe like the federal government coming in, stepping in. Like did when George Wallace was governor. Now we're going to jump up here to Kentucky. Children employed at Kentucky warehouse operating forklift, federal officials say, by Kate Gibson in CBSNews.com. A warehouse in Hebron, Kentucky, was fined for letting miners operate forklifts and pull stock for orders all involving machinery meant for adults by federal law. This is a Chinese company, so their culture apparently rules the management. The kids were 11 and 13. So this is another story from Appalachia that shows how desperate these companies are for cheap labor. They'll pay the fine and just move on, likely doing it again later when they think no one's looking. This starting to become an alarming trend in the U.S. now. Cheap child labor. My last story for you it came out in USA Today by Deborah Barfield Berry. Conservative leaders banned books. Now black museums are bracing for big crowds. Well, you know, it's more on the subject of book banning that I brought to you last week. As more and more conservative schools ban books on black history, black parents and kids are flocking to African American museums and churches to gain access to the books that are banned. But the institutions are a little worried about being overwhelmed. They aren't complaining too loudly as they know what's at stake if they turn people away. It's becoming a big trend across the United States right now. Is it going to lead to more problems? Well, we're just going to have to watch the news and find out. If I hear any more, I'll bring it to you. So that's the end of the first half. Now it's time to take a break and and, um, I'll let you listen to my commercial here while I take a couple minutes. Now. Once I come back, though, I've got a really big thing, as I said, uh, regarding um, genocides and massacres. It's pretty pretty interesting. So stick with me and I'll be right back. I want to take this break to bring attention to my website, crombihaw.com. You may use the link in the newsletters to find it for the first time as the name is in Gaelic and a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. I also have the RSS feeder enabled so if you like what I write, you can get a notice whenever I post something new. Within the website, there is a home page where you can learn a little more about what Hall means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little bit more about me in general. I have a blog page where I post copies of my online blog articles and stories and a copy of the weekly podcast newsletters. I also have a drop down menu with links to both podcasts and Spotify a page with links to my Medium and Substack pages, an ad page for my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. If you enjoy reading short stories, poetry, and blog articles from great writers around the world, I recommend Medium and Substack as great choices to find what you like to read about most and dive in as much as you want. Disclaimer. If you want to read my complete articles and stories in Medium.com, you will need to sign up for a subscription of $5 a month or $50 a year. I offer everything for free for 1 month in Substack. Then it's $5 a month or $30 a year with an advert to sign up on my web pages. These are the minimums these companies will allow me to charge, unfortunately. All the stories, poetry, and newsletters I write will be available in the blog section of my website if you don't want to subscribe to anything. If you like what you see, feel free to leave a message in the comment page anytime. I will respond very quickly via email. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the second half of the Village Oak Tree. This week, I'm bringing to light the North American history of genocidal massacres of African slaves, Native Americans, and non-Protestant immigrants, and how this tribal rage shakes out when the nations with the best weapons take out their anger on a less powerful group of humans, much like what Israel is doing to Palestine right now. I want to share a story with you from a modern perspective of what is going on in the world right now then I will let you listen to Danielle Mustafa read her story about an incident in American history where whites destroyed a community out of fear and bigotry. After this, I have a few more news and historical stories to shock people and bring awareness that cruel and gruesome acts of extreme violence can happen anywhere and at any time when enough people get angry or scared enough and have the power and tools to do something about it. Now, first of all, I'm going to read this story to you, okay? and it's entitled, You Want to Understand Black America's Solidarity with Palestine. Black Americans Know Colonization When We See It by Allison Wiltz. And This is in uh, published in a cultured publication on medium.com. If you're wondering why some black Americans have expressed solidarity with Palestinian people in Gaza, you should consider this size of American history, ranging from the final years of chattel slavery, until the early days of the Reconstruction era. Abraham Lincoln, the country's 16th president, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, didn't have a modernist view of racial equality that many would imagine. Most notably, Lincoln said, quote, I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes nor qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermingling with white people, and I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races which will ever forbid the two races living together on terms of political equality, unquote. Yikes! Despite Lincoln agreeing that slavery should be abolished, he did not believe black people could ever coexist in America with white people, a notion many endorsed at the time. In 1856, Lincoln became a member of the American Colonization Society. Those who joined this organization shared Lincoln's belief that black people could not coexist in America as equals to white people. After all, they reasoned, since Europeans forcibly removed black Americans from their homelands in West and Central Africa, that is where they should return. This idea was presented as an alternative or a condition of abolition. They wanted to force black Americans to migrate. To leave the country they were born in, which they fought to secure. By 1822, the American Colonization Society successfully established a West African colony. While the creation of this colony displaced and disrupted indigenous tribes, by 1847 this land, quote, became the independent nation of Liberia, unquote. When local indigenous tribes vehemently resisted initial attempts to purchase land To establish his colony, a, quote, Navy officer in charge, Lieutenant Robert Stockton, coerced a local ruler to sell a strip of land to the society, unquote, which gave them the leverage to solidify the colony and ultimately spread its original borders. With indigenous tribes continuing to attack the new colony, they built fortifications for protections, unquote, and the capital of Liberia, Monrovia, was named to honor President James Monroe, a man who enslaved at least 178 African people in America. What does this have to do with Palestine, you may be asking? Don't worry, we're getting to that. But first, back to Lincoln. Despite black Americans being born in the same country as Lincoln and not knowing a soul in Africa, since enslaved black people were not permitted to write or communicate with their estranged family members or maintain their former nationality, Lincoln and many others thought it was a good idea to send black Americans away. Quote, if, as the friends of colonization hope, we succeed in freeing our land from the dangerous presence of slavery, and at the same time in restoring a captive people to their long-lost fatherland, unquote, Lincoln said while giving a eulogy for statesman Henry Clay in 1852. Now, at this point, some black Americans supported this initiative because they saw it as preferable to staying in a nation that, thus far, Showed them nothing but hostility. However, by and large, black leaders rejected their offer. Frederick Douglass, a well known abolitionist and former enslaved man, didn't hold back in his response to Lincoln and other members of the American Colonization Society in his newspaper, The North Star. In 1849, he wrote, Shame upon the guilty wretches that dare propose and all that countenance such a proposition. We live here, have lived here, have a right to live here and mean to live here, While Lincoln argued that your race will suffer from living among us, while ours suffer from your presence, Black Americans weren't buying what they were selling. Rather than vow to treat Black Americans as their equals, many rather than disappear altogether if they were no longer to live as their slaves. By 1864, Lincoln signed an order abandoning colonization, but Black Americans will never forget this elevator pitch, which was essentially get out. Now to the matter between Israel and Palestine. Well, I would never describe these situations as equal since they have different backstories, main characters, historical events, and social, political, ethnic groups that shape the situation. I can't help but see the commonality between black Americans when the American government attempted to resettle in Liberia because they were considered undesirables and Jewish people fleeing persecution in Europe, resettling and creating the state of Israel which unfortunately displaced indigenous people, Palestinians, living there. Of course, one journalist warned me that I was barking up the wrong tree by thinking this way. Comparing white Americans' attempt to resettle black Americans in Liberia and European Jewish people's resettlement in Israel was a poor comparison, she claimed. But when I asked why, she didn't provide any clarity. We ended up agreeing on some points, though, like, quote, the treatment of Palestinians is abominable, Absolutely inexcusable, unquote. However, her point that quote, Palestinian leadership needs to work with leaders, world leaders toward peace, unquote, seems to assume that they are in a position of strength to negotiate, which doesn't seem like the case. To make matters worse, many are conflating the misdeeds of a terrorist organization, Hamas, with civilian Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. Despite the numerous crimes white Americans have committed against black people and terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan. No one in their right mind would suggest that this justifies harming white civilians. So why are people trying to justify an, an attack on the Gaza Strip where many children live? Because of the existence of terrorists among the population? According to AJ Plus News, a platform that uses digital storytelling to promote human rights and equality, holding power to account and amplifying the voice of the powerless, posted a video explaining that Israel and Gaza are not two countries at war. Gaza is a territory under siege, where every aspect of life is controlled by Israel. This sounds very familiar to how white Southerners sought to control black Americans after chattel slavery ended, by creating Jim Crow laws or black codes that cast them as second-class citizens and limited their social-political power and upward mobility. Adam Hanzi wrote in a 2016 Hot Post article, There are 10 things Palestinians can't do because of the Israeli occupation. Some of the most disturbing points Hamza mentioned were that Palestinians in Gaza can't control the flow of goods and supplies, or even control our access to water. Additionally, Palestinians are not free to travel across borders and or have the same due process rights of citizenship. This is undoubtedly a condition black Americans can relate to, as our entire experience in this country has required a constant effort to acquire equal civil rights and access to opportunities. Another shocking limitation is that Palestinians in Gaza are not equally protected by labor laws and live under curfew, which doesn't allow them to stay out late. Gaza residents call their home the world's largest open-air prison. Over 1.8 million people live there on just 365 square kilometers of land. The population of Gaza, two-thirds of them younger than 25, live in one of the most densely populated places on Earth. When you intentionally deprive people of resources, Poverty and desperation blossom, and so do extremist groups who exploit the fact that traditional methods of mediation have failed to recruit. After a recent attack from Hamas, a terrorist organization that's been at odds with other Palestinian leadership in the Gaza Strip, Israel has responded by declaring war. The latest assault, which began this time as a response to aggression, has contributed to hundreds of civilian deaths. However, on the casualty side, Palestinians have lost more in this conflict. According to the United Nations, roughly 6,400 Palestinians and 300 Israelis have been killed in the ongoing conflict since 2008, not counting the recent fatalities. Sadly, following any attempt to criticize Israeli policy, someone is bound to call you anti-Semitic. However, this is a false dichotomy. You can oppose Israeli occupation and anti-Semitism at the same time. Indeed, many black people, since the latest round of attacks, has spoken about the situation with the nuance it deserves. For instance, when former President Barack Obama discussed, quote, Israel's right to defend itself against terror, unquote, Aliami Aluran asked, quote, what about the Palestinians who have been displaced, forcibly occupied, and slaughtered for decades, unquote. What about their right to defend themselves? What about the terror they feel every day living under occupation? Her poignant response asked us to consider. Writer Whitney Elise asked Americans, quote, How can we say we are against terrorism and ignore apartheid? How can we say we are against violence and ignore state sponsored violence? There's a lot of nuance and complexity, but if we're going to make broad sweeping statements about being against violence, let's be consistent. Unquote. It feels, based on their pearl clutching, that they would rather us focus on the attack by Hamas, and ignore their overall justice inherent in Israeli occupation. As a black American, I'm cautious of narratives that attempt to justify the colonization, displacement, or segregation of a group of people. And sadly, I see a lot of that type of language circulating. For instance, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant called for denying Palestinian people electricity, food, and water, and fuel as Israel, Israel continues the bombardment of Gaza. When asked about the harshness of his approach, which would harm not just Hamas, but innocent civilians living in Gaza, he attempted to justify this strategy as appropriate referring to pa- Palestinians as human animals, unquote. To be clear, this type of language from government officials is appalling, a clear-cut example of dehumanization. This type of language should be condemned by all Americans and people throughout the world. Remember, during World War II, Nazis referred to Jewish people as untermenschen, or subhuman, to justify their persecution. The Israeli Defense Minister Gallen, a Jewish man, should know better than to repeat the language that echoes Nazis. While I was warned not to compare the situation of Black Americans to Palestinians, I can't help but see the common thread and pull it. Would this have been Black Americans' fate if our ancestors took Lincoln and the ACS on their offer and resettled in West Africa, constant war with indigenous people fighting against their displacement? Of course, at this point, many people claim they want peace in the Middle East, but as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. warned in his 1956 speech when peace becomes obnoxious. If peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, I don't want peace. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want peace. If peace means peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict, the existence of justice for all people. Uh, and unless that's the type of peace people are calling for, where Palestinians will have equal access to food, water, and human rights, then it isn't peace or after it's silence. The alliance between the Black liberationists and Palestine is nothing new. In a 1963 speech before leaving the Nation of Islam, civil rights leader Malcolm X did asked, did the Zionists have the legal or moral right to invade Arab Palestine, uproot its Arab citizens from their homes, to seize all Arab property for themselves just based on the religious claim that their forefathers lived there thousands of years ago? He continued, only a thousand years ago, the Moors lived in Spain. Would we'll this give the Moors the, of today the legal or moral right to invade the Iberian Peninsula, drive out its Spanish citizens, and then set up a new Moroccan nation, where Spain used to be, as the European Zionists had done to our Arab brothers and sisters of Palestine? Of course, the answer is no, from Malcolm X's viewpoint. He recognized colonization saw it as ugly, no matter who the system was designed to aid. This is not to say that all black Americans are in solidarity with Palestine. Indeed, many people would disagree or take issue with this comparison. But the fact remains, black people in the diaspora are no strangers to apartheid, segregation, and persecution. Thus, we are well equipped to call out a colonization when we see it, no matter whose feathers get ruffled in the process. And so. That's, I read that simply because it means so much in this time right now. So at this point, I'm going to bring you Ms. Danielle Mustafa's Pogrom Elaine.
1: Pogrom Elaine, September 30 through October 2nd, 1919. The Elaine Massacre was by far the deadliest racial confrontation in Arkansas history. In 1919, African Americans vigorously fought back when their communities came under attack. Labor unrest and strikes took place in several cities as workers tried to organize. As a response to union organizing meetings in Elaine, Arkansas, not only did the local whites attack, but the county sheriff organized a posse of more than 500 men to attack Elaine. The 500-man posse, in addition to the local combatants, along with the unforgivable acts committed, is what pushed this event into being a true pogrom. A pogrom is an organized massacre of helpless people. When 600 U.S. federal troops finally showed up three days later, They found white men roaming the area, randomly hunting and killing black men, women, and children. Due to fighting back, five whites were killed in the chaos they started. Estimates say up to 237 African Americans perished there. Witnesses described the attackers cutting off the ears and toes of their victims as souvenirs. A local teacher described more than 20 Blacks killed and tossed into a pit to burn. 16 African Americans killed had their bodies hung from a bridge near Helena. They were murdered because they wanted. No, because they deserved their piece of the American dream. I generally write from the narrator point of view, but for this, I've attempted the first person as a survivor. Arkansas, 1919. It's dark and it's hot. We had a meeting at that hoop spur church to discuss this latest crop. Cotton made a lot of money this year, but a sharecropper still can't get a check to clear. Landlord made 500 off of me. Said I owed him 6 gotta be a better way. It's clear the game is fixed. Meeting up at the church, we gonna start us a union. Get a good fair wage for this work we been doing. About 11 o'clock, somebody shot at the church. Folks dipping and diving, whole meeting in a lurch. We tried to flee, to run out of this place. Got outside to see shooters in white face. They shot left, They shot right, but we got shooters, too. Ours hit one of those men, and we ran on through. Why is this happening? What's going on? We just trying to get pay for the work that's been done. We run, try to hide, but they give chase, too. Men dead in the streets. I passed one, then passed two. By the time I reached home, more white men had come, yanking people from their homes, killing mothers and sons. All we wanted is fair pay for the only work we allowed to do. Wanting to be human, we will lose fathers and daughters, too. Me and mine took off for the woods. We survived the night, but it was not good. Many died, and still they came back the next day. Any black face they saw was new prey for their gunplay. They said we was planning an insurrection. Against what? We free. This here is self protection. They said we was planning on killing white folk? Who came to our meeting shooting up townsfolk? I got friends dead, cold in the streets because they thought their families should be able to eat. Some houses, they killed everybody in them, because we wanted to afford life everybody I know has been condemned. Pogramy Lane: Remember and learn, lest we repeat and more black bodies burn.: I hope you
0: enjoyed that, And now I'm going to read a poem to you uh, on the same topic, Why White People Didn't Help More, My Brand in Hand, The Slave Stealer, by Courtney Nicole Wrights in Medium.com. Jonathan Walker has a story to tell. In 1841, living as a white man in Florida, I distanced myself from diminishing Negroes of their self-worth. White supremacy is the evil white man's turf, so I moved away. Massachusetts is where I chose to stay. On a quest for money, I returned to the panhandle. Only to be manhandled one night, I was brave. I rescued seven slaves. We were captured on our trip by a southern ship, thrown in a wet dungeon, in prison, rotten eggs thrown at my face, all because I helped the black race. This happened to me because I wanted black people to be free. The United States Marshal Ebenezer Dorr held me down on the floor. On my hand, he branded SS, slave stealer, because I committed treason. My name is Jonathan Walker. My life mattered. I have more stories to tell. White people are under a spell. White people didn't want to suffer their own abuse or care enough. It was easier for white people to ignore. They didn't want to be like me, tortured on the floor. It's why white people didn't help the Negroes more. The moral of the poem, The only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. By Edmund Burke. And so... Now, I'm going to bring you into the modern world here with this next story. Now, I picked a story out of the USA Today.com news by Meredith Newman, and it's entitled The Delaware State of Delaware Forcibly Sterilized Her Mother. Now, she's ready to share the state's dark secret. This is a historical article that details how white descendants of Europeans in the early 20th century decided that eugenics was the best thing for white Americans. The state, Delaware, and one particular doctor from Russia decided that sterilizing the mentally and physically handicapped within a state-run mental institution was the best way to preserve the superior genetics of the white race. This is where Hitler got the idea from for his master race program. This was a real thing throughout the United States well into the 1970s. In the latter years, it was more prevalent within indigenous reservations out west. An estimated 70,000 Americans were forcibly sterilized in the 20th century. This even included some men. Girls as young as 11 were sterilized in Delaware to prevent procreative menace. In other words, if you were poor and pregnant, not of sound mind, the state would institutionalize them and forcibly sterilize them for the good of the community. These are the sick people that ran the country and still would be if we let them. And Alabama is a good example of that right now. So now I've got another story for you. A partial quote. From a writer and medium by the name of William Spivey. In his article recently, Barbarism Not Normally Associated with America, quote, We are often horrified in America by what we see in the Middle East, Africa, and other nations worldwide. We we'll point fingers at human rights abuses of other countries, but we never acknowledge our own. It is right to condemn human rights abuses when they occur elsewhere. It would also be right to focus on those within our borders. Addressing those in a prison and not writing past excesses out of history books. All the behavior we accuse Hamas has happened in America, including beheading after the German Coast Rebellion and Nat Turner's revolt. We really should remove the planks from our eyes before condemning others." Now I'm going to get into Native Americans because this ties also in with the African Americans. And I got a news article here out of The Guardian uh, U.S. News by Michael Sonato. We were not consulted, unquote, Native Americans fight lithium mine on site of 1865 massacre. On September 12, 1865, 30 to 50 members of the Numu tribe in north northern Nevada by the 1st Nevada Cavalry, including women and children. Now Thacker Pass, called Pihi Muhu, Rotten Moon by the Numu, is being fought over again by corth Corporate lithium miners, who have found the largest lithium deposit in the U.S. today, the Native Americans argue that it is sacred land and can't be mined. But lithium is the world's new white gold and is in high demand everywhere. They want to turn it into a national park, but corporate interests and their lobbying power in Congress will probably outweigh any trouble requests, especially with this much money at stake. Now I'm going to get into history, and this I'm starting out with. History of massacres of Native Americans since the very first colonists from Europe showed up on the shores. I'm starting you off with a story that I got out of Equal Justice Initiative um, News and History. It's a short story from the Equal Justice Initiative detailing the hanging of 38 Dakota men for an uprising over food and abuse by the white settlers of western Minnesota in 1862. And the massacre at Wounded Knee, South Dakota, in December of 1890. And the big thing about that was that these 38 Native American men were hanged all at the same time in the largest execution of prisoners, if you want to call it that, in, in American history to date. Uh, all because they were hungry. You know, you'd think it'd be on a reservation at that point, uh, but the white people were doing everything they can to exterminate them. So, I'm going to do is I'm going to start out with a partial list of massacres conducted by European colonists and their descendants in North America that I found from this website called Zin, ZINN Education Project. That is a good reference for a lot of the massacres in American history, plus a lot of other educational, historical educational stuff. And it's, what I'm going to give you is by no means all of them. And there, you can read the rest of them in the link I'll share with you. My first one. In the very early days of English colonization, the Jamestown Massacre, 1622. Now remember, Jamestown was founded in 1607. In 1622, Powhatan warriors attacked the English settlement at Jamestown, Virginia, killing over 340 people. The massacre was a retaliation for English encroachment on Powhatan land and the kidnapping of Powhatan women. The Penquo War, 1636 to 1637. The Pequot War was a conflict between the Pequot tribe and the English colonists of New England. The war began after the Pequots killed nine English colonists. In response, the English launched a series of attacks against the Pequots, culminating in the Mystic Massacre of 1637. And this is in Mystic, Connecticut, in which English Puritans killed over 400 Pequot men, women, and children. The Pueblo Revolt, 1680. The Pueblo Revolt was an uprising of the Pueblo people against Spanish rule in New Mexico. The revolt began after the Spanish attempted to suppress Pueblo religious practices. In other words, they wanted them all to be Catholics. In response, the Pueblo people killed over 400 Spaniards and drove them out of New Mexico for over a decade. The Negro Fort Massacre, July 1816, is a good historical story about how the newly formed American country went to war on Spanish territory in Florida in the Florida Panhandle. And with one lucky shot from a hot cannonball from a ship's cannon, in the, it went right into the Fort's Powder magazine and destroyed the fort, killing 270 men, women, and children of color and local, and local Creek tribe Native Americans. So basically, this takes place right after the War of 1812. Uh, a lot of colored people were displaced and free. A lot of them escaped and migrated to this fort down in a, in a panhandle. But, of course, the Southerners couldn't have that. They, you know, they had to have all their slaves back. So they basically invaded Spanish territory uh, with their ships, American ships, and lo- a lucky shot destroyed to fort and killed everybody. Bloody Monday, August 1855, Louisville, Kentucky, where a Protestant anti-immigration mob massacred 22 Catholic Germans and Irish immigrants and a, bun- and, and a bunch of property was destroyed and all because of writings from a newspaper editor, and no one was ever convicted. New York City draft riots, July 1863. Poor white people took exception to a notice that rich people could afford to buy off a draft notice for recruitment in the Civil War. They rioted, wrecking the main recruiting station. Then they marched through the streets for three days, destroying and killing anything in their path. Up to 400 people may have been killed, mostly African-Americans and a colored orphan asylum. Fort Pillow Massacre, April 1864. Confederate soldiers under General Nathan Bedford Forrest massacred over 500 surrendering Union troops, most of them from black soldiers serving in the U.S. Colored Troops Unit, the USCT. Sand Creek Massacre, November 1864. The Sand Creek Massacre was an attack by the U.S. Army on a Cheyenne and Arapaho village in Colorado. The attack was led by Colonel John Chivington who was known for his hatred of Native Americans. Chimington's soldiers killed over 150 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, including many women and children. Ebenezer Creek Massacre, December 1864. One of General Sherman's commands crossed a swollen river with Confederate soldiers in pursuit. The unit commanding general pulled up the pontoon that they had across the river, leaving the black refugees to the mercy of the pursuing Confederates and the swollen river where hundreds were killed. The Wounded Knee Massacre 1890 The Wounded Knee Massacre was the final major battle of the Indian Wars. The massacre occurred at Wounded Knee Creek on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. U.S. soldiers opened fire on a group of Lakota Sioux people, killing over 150 men, women, and children. So, that's just a taste of what these European descendants of the, the you know the, the colonists and their descendants have done to anybody that he didn't like here in the United States. And if you want a complete list of everything from start to finish, I've got a link here from Wikipedia that has a list of all of the Indian massacres in North America. The picture I'm trying to give you is this. The white Anglo-Saxon descendants of the Europeans claimed that the lands of North America were for them and nobody else in the early 1600s. And they have made a point to push out or enslave all those others they feel are inferior to them. They have said this over and over again since they set up the first permanent colony on the continent in 1607 at Jamestown, Virginia. As you can see from the examples I provided, they had no problem resorting to extreme violence to achieve and keep that supremacy going, even to this day. And it wasn't just towards the Africans and Native Americans. They took out their rage against immigrants from everywhere who weren't like them. Catholics were a heavy target back in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Italians, Irish, Germans, and Chinese, and any others who are of darker skin or non Protestant believers. We see this happening right in front of us every day in the news feeds from North America. With governing institutions breaking down more and more, what does the future of North America look like regarding the constant fight of the Anglo Saxon Protestant descendants to eradicate or subjugate any other humans who are not of their superior tribe? The outright white supremacists can be dismissed as exceptions and a serious minority. But the actions of the white Protestant politicians and wannabe non white bootlickers speak loudly with what is happening in the southeastern United States and a lot of the Midwestern states that sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War. Now there are even more Western states falling in that same line. Is North America headed for a race war because the Anglo Saxons feel threatened by the quote inferior unquote humans? They're fast becoming the majority population in North America due to the large influxes of refugees from impoverished, war-torn countries. The fearful whites are fighting as hard as they can to keep them out of the U.S., and Canada is having a reckoning by their Anglo-Saxon and French populations because their current liberal government is letting in so many, and they got no place to put them. Watch the news from an outsider's perspective, if you can. See the bigger picture of climate migrants and refugees from around the world seeking a safer place to live. And look back into the history of North America and ask yourself, is history going to repeat itself within the next 20 years here on this continent? Will the majority of the white Anglo-Saxon descendants of the original European colonists rise up and commit egregious acts of violence against all of the others like they have in the past because they feel threatened by their loss of power? So that's all I've got for you this week. I hope I've enlightened you a little bit. I will leave you with my last question and thoughts of the week. Which side of the race divide are you on? Tribal bigots have been around forever. Tribal wars in North America have been part of the landscape for as long as there have been people here. Before the Europeans came, the Native Americans fought with one another in tribal warfare, but they rarely committed wholesale slaughter of the innocent. Then came the Europeans. They have no problem slaughtering men, women, and children to get and keep what they have taken. So how far would you go to protect what you think is yours? I'd like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll return again for another episode of The Village Oak Tree. Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more you share, the more we can convince enough people to make the world a better place to live in. Just search for The Village Oak Tree in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under The Village Oak Tree today. As a Shauna I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you something that might bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your troubles be less, and your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness go through your door. go foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.